0: Hello, everyone. In this podcast, we will be discussing sensitive topics such as sexual assault. It's important to take care of yourself while listening. Some suggestions are listening while you're in a healthy headspace or knowing who you can reach out to if you become upset. Our 24-7 helpline for crisis calls based out of Central Florida is 407-500-HEAL. By contacting the national hotline at 1-800-656-4673, You can get support and learn about your local resources. There's always someone ready to help. down with professionals that serve survivors and victims of trauma, or those who've experienced violence and have conversations about social issues. This week, we are talking about supporting survivors. My name is Emily Mitchell. My pronouns are she, her, and I am the education coordinator at the Victim Service Center of Central Florida. So with me today, I have two amazing people. First off is Priscilla Aquino. So Priscilla uses she, her pronouns and is a bilingual victim advocate and crisis counselor at the VSC who is fluent in Spanish. She obtained her master's in social work from Keene University in New Jersey, and has over 20 years of experience working with adolescents, families, and victims of crime. Priscilla is very passionate about helping people heal from their trauma and rediscover their inner strength, as well as educating others. She hopes to be the voice for those who are unable to advocate for themselves. So Priscilla, thank you for coming back onto the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to have you. And I'm also very excited to introduce Aurealis Sosa. So Aurealis uses she, her pronouns, and is a registered mental health counselor intern in the state of Florida. However, she just got her license today. <laughs> she just told us right before this recording. So congratulations, Orealis. Um, She earned her master's in clinical mental health counseling from the University of Central Florida. Orialis's background consists of providing counseling and victim advocacy support to survivors of crime and trauma. In her current role, she provides counseling support to high school students and is one of VSE's contract therapists. So Ori congratulations, and welcome onto the podcast. Thank you, Emily. I'm super excited to have this super important discussion. As a very brief introduction, we talk a lot about on this podcast about how to be great supporters to survivors in our lives. And today, we are gonna be talking about re-victimization and its possible impacts what to say and what not to say when someone discloses a history of trauma, how supporters can practice self-care, and how we can all better help victims and survivors as a community, as individuals, as helpers, and all that stuff. So with that, always an important question and kind of a big one to start off with, but what exactly are we talking about when we say trauma? What
1: is trauma? It's... um. It's an interesting word because it has you can utilize it in so many different scenarios, but when we break it down, trauma is an experience is an experience that a person may have within their life, where it affects them, you know, emotionally, uh, mentally it has an impact. A lot of times people might experience that maybe through crime that they experience, maybe a loss of somebody, maybe it was an accident, maybe, you know, um, something that they have been dealing with for a long period of time. is something that that person experiences. Um, and the trauma can be reflected in many different forms and ways. Sometimes people are in shock, you know, or, or um, you know, they can take it on in different forms. But overall, you know, I would say more or less in those terms, that's what trauma may look like. I don't know, Ariella, if you want to add to that. Yeah, I think usually um, when
2: I talk to people about
1: what trauma is, it
2: you know, because trauma can be a different event for anyone. So I think really what's more important is the person's reaction to the situation. Um, essentially, trauma is, you know, anything that exceeds a person's ability to cope. Um, so anything that um, can leave a person feeling, you know, helpless, um you know feeling isolated. Um, so I, I just think that it's really important to focus on the person's reaction um, as opposed to the event itself. Because um, again, something that may be traumatic for one person may not be traumatic for another. Um, so yeah, just anything that can leave somebody feeling helpless and um, I would also add can kind of make it difficult for people to, you know, feel a full range of emotions. Um, you know, kind of leave them feeling overwhelmed.
0: Absolutely. I really appreciate you both kind of bringing up the individuality that is trauma. Um, And I love that you brought up kind of looking more at how someone reacts to it rather than the event itself, because we don't want to kind of label like, oh, that's trauma for you or that, that isn't trauma because it's different for everyone. I remember I did a podcast with a therapist who kind of had an example of a child who may have uh, accidentally, like, been folded into one of those pull-out couches. Mm -hmm. Um, For some children, that's very traumatic, right, and very scary, and they're trapped. But for another child, that might have been a really funny experience or a fun experience for them. And after she kind of explained that, I was like, yes, that's exactly a great example of what can be traumatic for some individuals may not be for others. And so just recognizing that as a supporter. And I think another, um, you know, you brought up reactions and common reactions. I think there's a lot of anxiety that survivors may feel that they're not reacting correctly to trauma. So Mm. I'd like to kind of dive in. And Priscilla, you mentioned there's a lot of different ways that trauma can um, impact someone. So what are some of those common reactions that we see?
1: So when we're working with someone that might be experiencing trauma, you know, where big question is, you know, like, you know, what are the common reactions? What am I experiencing? Because a lot of times when I'm sitting down with survivors, they will describe to me, you know, a whole bunch of feelings and thoughts. And their big thing is, I feel like I'm going crazy. And I always tell them, you're not going crazy. Um, These are just common reactions that you're having to trauma. So we might be looking at somebody who might be experiencing depression sadness. You might be, somebody might be experiencing anger. Um, They might be going through a, a whole different array of emotions. You know, sometimes somebody might feel numb. Other times somebody might be okay, right? It's just how they're coping with the, you know, with their feelings, with their thoughts. We might, you know, find somebody that, you know, may feel guilty that, you know, they might feel some self-blame, you know, some embarrassment, you know, with, with their specific victimization or or situation, those feelings might be brought on. A lot of times trauma can also affect the relationships that people may have with others. You know, it can affect, you know, what might be going on in those dynamics and those relationships. So, you know, some of these people might be experiencing these feelings and the triggers, it, it, it kind of infiltrates like the relationships, the things that they have going on, work, school, Home is not just, you know, specific to one area, it could be affecting their whole life in general.
0: Always a really good reminder of these different aspects of like social impacts, physical impacts, emotional, psychological. And then I appreciate you bringing up the fact that it can seep into other parts of people's lives too. It's not like this contained, you know, feeling, it can kind of have ripple
1: effects. Yeah, and it's also, like, we have to remember, like, who is it that we're servicing, who we're talking to, right? So if it's somebody who is... Is a child, somebody who is in elementary school, or maybe they're in high school, right? Because trauma can affect anybody, you know, that for them, the, it might, they might affect their grades, you know, if somebody struggling who was maybe a straight A student is all of a sudden now, you know, having Fs or cutting classes, you know, maybe they're having fights in school, because they're not coping well with the trauma, it's the way of how they're reacting. Um, you know, so it really depends on who we're we're working with, you know, um, could be affecting their job, maybe somebody's calling out, more, or maybe not fulfilling their responsibilities. So it can definitely affect all aspects of their life in general.
0: Yeah, Orialis, I didn't know if you wanted to add anything to that as well.
1: No, I mean,
2: I was just really like shaking my head at the beginning when Priscilla um, said how a lot of her clients, you know, say that they feel like they're kind of going crazy, because I've definitely heard that um, a lot of times. I think a lot of like what we do as supporters is. know, normalizing, like educating, you know, validating um, their experience. Um, I know something I always tell my clients and that I think maybe a lot of like folks have heard is, you know, you're having a normal reaction to an abnormal um, experience. So that's, I I tend to say that a lot to the people I work with. Um, But no, I mean, yeah, it's just, it's pervasive. It can really impact like all different levels of your life. Um, You know, like Priscilla said, relationships, work, um, you know, anything like that, just kind of going through that experience and processing that itself is just so overwhelming, um, that to do anything on top of that can be, you know, very draining. Um, so yeah, I, I would also say a lot of times it can lead to uh, a lot of avoidance, a lot of, you know, numbing, um, cause again, there's just so many emotions and so many things that can, you know, just leave people really, really tapped out.
0: Definitely. I think that there's some like myths about, you know, oh, every person who is experiences trauma will be hysterical and crying or things like that. And as supporters, you know, don't be surprised or try not to be surprised to know that there's so many different reactions to it. It's very individual. And so if there is that numbness that you were highlighting, that that doesn't mean it hasn't impacted them. It's that's how it is impacting them, if that makes sense. Um, so I really appreciate you all kind of showing the diverse effects of trauma, what it can look like. Um, but I, I've heard this term a lot too, revictimization. So what exactly is revictimization and what can it look like?
2: Um, I guess when, when I thought of it and like Priscilla, you can add anything um, after is essentially, it's when survivors feel um, victimized, not just from the assault, but from kind of other experiences that can follow. Um, So I was thinking of, for example, you know, having to go through like the criminal justice system, um, feeling questioned or, you know, feeling blamed by Family members, uh, you know, victim blaming messages that you might see in this in social media. So it's it's kind of it's the after effect, and a lot of times it can really trigger a lot of those uh, same feelings that came about from the trauma. Um, so that's what I was thinking. I don't know if Priscilla, you have sort of a different definition. You're hitting
1: it right on the nail. It's definitely where, you know, once somebody has gone through their trauma and it's almost kind of like, you know, having to relive it over and over again. That's what I like to tell people, you know, when we're talking about re-victimization, it's kind of like the this being stuck in, almost in like in a loop, you know, where you're constantly being thrown into that loop. You're not able to get out of it to be able to continue with your healing process, you know? And like what we said, that can look like in many different ways, you know, working the criminal justice system, that's a big piece. Um, when you're working with family and the family is like, you know, nothing happened get over it it's okay move on like not acknowledging what happened you know now you're stuck on your own you know with this trauma and they don't want to accept it or acknowledge it or work with you to help you heal um another aspect is um when the the systems that are put in place to help and support people and they re-victimize, you know, our, our our clients, where maybe for an example, you know, we may have somebody who was um, assaulted, or maybe they're in a domestic violence situation, and they're now trying to access a shelter to go into to spend the night, right? Or they're trying to get resources from the community, and they don't qualify, they're not eligible, or there's nothing available to them. And there's, you know, the, and, and it's like, they can't seem to get out of what's happening to them. And so the same feelings that they were feeling with the trauma comes right back up again, they're, you know, um, having the same reactions. So it's almost like a vicious cycle that happens to that person that's unable for them to kind of move forward to be able to heal and process, you know, their healing.
0: Yeah, I'm hearing words that are coming up to my mind as far as like, must feel helpless, you know, in that kind of situation. And, you know, we already we know that sexual violence is about power and control. And so being in these systems that, you know, we feel kind of helpless and when they're trying to help because of a variety of different reasons, you know, funding, you know, there's, there's a lot that goes into it, but, um, I can't even imagine what it must feel like, um, for people to feel like, you know, reaching out for help and then, um, either turned away, blamed for it, things like that. Um, whether it's systems or supporters. So I wanted to ask you, why is it so important for supporters to know about re-victimization?
1: When somebody is trying, you know, when, I, when I'm when i working with with some of my clients, you know, when they call and they're like, oh, I want to work on my trauma. I need help. I, I need to feel better. I want my life back. It's this journey. I call it the healing journey. And, you know, as a supporter, we want to make sure that you know they don't get revictimized because sometimes it's like when they're being caught up in that cycle right being revictimized they can't seem to move forward they can't see the the success that they are making right with their progress with their journey you know and sometimes they have these huge setbacks and depending on what the setback is it's they might seem that it's too big to, uh, I, I've i tried doing this. They might give up. I'm going to just stay where I'm at. I'm not, this is not worth it. I'm not going to keep moving forward. They must give up hope. They give up on themselves. So it's kind of like just trying to make sure and understand that, you know, we want to make sure that we don't keep them on that cycle. We don't keep them in their trauma. We don't keep reminding them that because it's already hard enough to, try to process, cope, understand the trauma that they're going through, and then to have to have setbacks along the way. And depending on how they're feeling at the moment, what their mental status might be, what they're capable of handling, they're fragile. And so it can really do some more damage on top of what they've already experienced.
2: Yeah, I was gonna um, say like it just hopefully can help supporters to be more understanding and to to be a better support system for the survivor. Um, you know, understanding that again, they may be tapped out, they may be um, overwhelmed, they may be feeling, you know, very helpless. So, you know, understanding that having you there to kind of like guide them and walk through them um, is definitely a a necessity. I I think that a good support system is one of the most important parts of healing, um, one of the most helpful parts, uh, especially because oftentimes with all the shame and blaming, you know, survivors can feel so um, isolated. So, you know, just understanding that, yeah, there's so many things that that person is is going through, um, so many like barriers that may come up um, and just understanding like the value that there is in you being there for them.
0: Yeah, I'm actually gonna jump ahead in some of our questions, cause that, that led me to this, um, you know, question about, you know, through the work that you both do with survivors, Do your clients often bring up the trauma itself to process it? Or do they tend to chat about how people responded to their disclosures?
2: I I do spend a lot of time, um, with the people that I talk about talking about, um, yeah, just like the family dynamics, you know, the ways that, um, they feel isolated or, you know, the way that maybe they feel blamed, um, yeah. The, the reactions that the people they cared about had. Um, I, I would say I spend a majority of the time talking to them, you know, about that.
1: For me, it's almost like a 50-50. I think mm-hmm. it really depends on where the person is at, you know, where they're at, you know, um, within the trauma. And I think it depends on the support that they're they're receiving from those around them, right? So if the support and the reaction, or I should say lack of support, and if there was a negative reaction from family and friends, yeah, that's going to be the first thing that they're going to bring up because I can't believe my family didn't believe me. I can't believe that my best friend or my partner didn't believe me. And that's what, and they might be just focused on that. And we might spend a lot of time on that, right? Because not only are they dealing with the trauma, but now they're also dealing that this relationship that they had with this person, and even it's a familial relationship, is now being affected, right? So it's like trying to, hold on to that relationship and trying to salvage it because some damage has been done, trust, a trust has been broken and whatnot. So I think it really depends on where the survivor is at, you know, and what's impacting them the most. So for me, I get both. I, you know, it's where they're at.
0: Definitely. I bring it up because I've heard from other advocates that, you know, they do kind of talk a lot about, you know, kind of the aftermath of it and talking and their relationships with people and, and the systems that they work with. And it, it just kind of goes to show like, you know, more to your point of why is it important that survivor uh, supporters understand re-victimization and what it can look like to show that a lot of times um, this might be even just as impactful or, um, you know, it has an impact, I guess, your role is really important in this person's life um, as a supporter. So I just wanted to kind of highlight the importance of it with that question. So I appreciate you both shedding light on it. I wanted to know if you also had some kind of case studies or specific examples keeping in, of course, confidentiality, um, but of survivors experiencing exactly uh,
1: what we're talking about, which is re-victimization. Let me see, let me pull a goodie out of my bag of tricks, because, <laughs> um, you know, it, it's, it's an unfortunate thing to say, but I would say a good, you know, at least, at least half of the survivors that I work with talk about and experience re-victimization um i have been working on a case with a young woman who um called our hotline our helpline and um she was living out of state and she wanted to report uh, her uh, sexual abuse that she experienced as a child and it was from a family member and um she knew that her statute of limitation was running out and so I, i have to do this i said okay We, you know, we hooked up, you know, we did the intake. I started working with her. Her story was so interesting because she had to contact three different law enforcement agencies here in the state of Florida because that's where um, the sexual abuse occurred, right? In those three different counties. And sadly to say that her experience was not the best one. You know, she did come across um, a lot of pushback, um you know where she had worked with certain you know law enforcement agencies that were just like nope sorry you don't have enough evidence nope sorry we can't help you um she I remember when one of my last sessions with her she was waiting on a phone call from one of the one of the uh, one of the agencies that uh, the law enforcement agencies who didn't bother to call her when she called and was just like hey I didn't hear anything back from my report what's going on um that detective was like well you didn't have, there was not not enough evidence. I felt like there was no need to call you back. And she was like, are you kidding me? Um, So that was one experience, but I think the one that hurt her the most was, again, one of the other, um, out of the three, one law enforcement agency had told her, well, what you're describing to me is not sexual abuse. If that family member touched your leg, it wasn't the inside of your thigh, it was just on the outside. Um, So that's just touching a thigh regularly, it's not the inside. And um, if they kissed you on the lips, family dynamics, know, there's some families that may practice that in their culture, that's just like a family dynamic then. So this is not really sexual abuse. That's what she was told by the, the law enforcement agency. And um, that was troubling to her. Um, and so she, um, it, it was it was so difficult. She knew it was going to be tough to having to report all of this, but to know that the people that she felt like, they can help me. I know that I can do this. She kind of felt like, kind of defeated. felt like she couldn't move forward. Um, but, you know, we continued to push through and try to figure out another, tactic and try to challenge this and that's what we're working on right now um but it was it was difficult and challenging you know and that's just one um experience you know of, of a survivor that I'm working with when you know in regards to that um and it was tough it was something that she had a hard time processing every time when I would meet with her she was very upset but it sometimes when I would end the session she felt even more on fire and motivated to keep going She kind of like was like at the end of our conversation, she felt motivated enough. And she was just like, when this is all said and done, I'm going to call every news agency. I'm going to talk about this. Like she felt enough. Like she just wanted to keep talking about her experience to shed light. Like, you know, it was hard enough her personal experience, you know, being, you know, sexually abused as a child and then wanting to get, you know, support and help to when she wanted to report it. And she didn't get that. She didn't feel that. And that was very difficult and challenging for her. So she wants to share that with others because she knows that there's other people that are experiencing that. Thank
0: you for sharing that Priscilla. Um, They've done a lot of research on why survivors may not come forward and report. It's one of the most underreported crimes ever. And um, the biggest reason hasn't really changed over the decades of research, which is fear of not being believed or being blamed for what happened. So I know that there's amazing law enforcement agencies out there and law enforcement people who are, start by believing, you know, we, we, we work with uh, amazing, amazing people. And at the same time, this can also still be an experience that survivors have. Or else, I don't know if you have any um, case studies or examples that you wanted to bring up.
2: Um, I was trying to think while Priscilla was talking, um, I have one, uh, I haven't thought about this in a while, so I may (laughs) have a little trouble recalling everything, but, um, yeah, I remember a few, uh, years ago, I, I, mostly worked with, um, it was a mom who, uh, was applying for, um, for victim compensation for relocation. And so the victim was actually um, her daughter. I believe the daughter was around 12 or so, or so like that. Um, and just unfortunately, with when we were applying for uh, the relocation, um, unfortunately in the way that the report uh, was written, um, her application was denied uh, because the um, you know, office said that uh, the child had consented um, to the act and obviously mom was very enraged um, because this is her underage child um you know she needs to she's scared about her safety she didn't have the funds to move um and she was really depending on those funds to get her and her child into you know a safer place um away from the person so um luckily you know she i was working with her so i was able to advocate on her behalf i was able to Um, you know, contact the police officer and provide some, like, education to the officer. Um, And I actually, I ended up writing, um, you know, a letter, um, you know, had to include the definition, um, you know, of sexual assault um, for children and how, you know, children under a certain age can't consent. Um, So, yeah, just how to educate them. And so, luckily, kind of going through all those processes, um, they did finally you know, approve her. And, um, you know, she was able to get the funds. So, but yeah, that was a very difficult um, and just enraging experience for mom, you know, to have to go through. And obviously, you know, if she hadn't had someone to kind of guide her through that, she wouldn't have known how to advocate and what the laws were and everything. So, um, you know, luckily we were working together.
0: I'm just so happy to hear that you were able to help and, and hear also, Priscilla, how you're supporting the survivor too as an advocate. And we're going to talk a little bit more specifically how advocates um, like advocates at the VSC can help survivors kind of navigate through revictimization and process those emotions and things like that. i um, so glad that you provided the education because while you were saying like, yeah, the person was 12 and they consented to the act. I'm like, whoa, 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 red flag. Nope, that's not, nope, they can't consent to that at all. (laughs) They're just not able to, they're children. Um, So I'm really glad that you you brought that up. And uh, kind of shifting gears just like a little bit, um, I also wanted to uplift that those who are maybe part of the LGBTQ plus community or maybe are part of other marginalized groups may experience re-victimization. So I don't know if you had any examples and it doesn't have to be a case study specifically, but just examples of how maybe um, people who like trans survivors, for example, um, how they may experience kind of further discrimination, just kind of these intersectionalities kind of um, impacting and and having this re-victimization kind of
1: happen as well. So I recently moved from New Jersey. And some of the work that I did um, in New Jersey, I worked for a hospital and was working with victims of crime as well. And I had the privilege of working with um, a transgendered a female um, a victim, a survivor. And um, I remember when I met with her and um I noticed that all her paperwork from the hospital, even before I even knew, even before I even spoke to her on the phone, you know, um, her the her what well, her legal name was, and it was a male name. And I thought to myself, okay, well, it says here that they might be trans, but this is the legal. So I was like, okay, call the person on the phone. And um, it was a very feminine voice. And I was like, okay, you know, I introduced myself and I was calling the person by the legal name that was listed, and it was a male name. And um, she then corrected me, and she was like, this is how you can call me. And I was like, okay, great. So when I did my intake, I met her, brought her in. She was sharing with me how people would refuse to call her by the name that she wanted to be called. And, And this was a person that when you looked at her, she was transitioning her beautiful long hair was, you know, her body was different. Like she presented as a female and she, and at the place where she worked at, um, even like friends and family, they would refuse to call her by the name that she had chosen. And so just at that near that, that just that in itself, and she would share with me, you know, even after like what had happened to her she was physically assaulted. And even then, like just not getting that respect, you know, and acknowledging this is who I am. This is who I choose to be. This is how I want to be, you know, referred as, and they would still refuse. And, and of course they would treat her differently and whatnot. Um, But um, that, um, that was something that she had went through. So I don't know if that kind of, you know, um, I don't know if you have another story or or not. but that was one of my experiences that I had with working with somebody like that.
2: I mean, I, I I know that when I was working as an advocate, I, um, I can remember one situation specifically where um, there was a trans survivor who was calling the line and, uh, you know, had experienced, I believe, some misgendering and such and just harmful experiences with the medical community. And, um, you know, we were able to educate them on how we had an LGBTQ advocate. And um, that specific advocate was able to go and meet up with them to do the exam and, um you know and everything and and as a result they were able to feel a lot safer and you know more comfortable coming in knowing that um they weren't going to be you know misgendered or um and that it would be you know a safe uh space for them so um I, i can at least remember like one situation where that where that was good
0: definitely i think that when you mentioned uh the word like respect and also a safe place It's super important that, you know, we acknowledge and validate people's authentic selves and, you know, survivors who have gone through so much. This can just be another trigger, um, for them if systems or supporters are not authentically, you know, accepting and supporting and respecting, honestly, them, right? Um, I know that we talked a little bit about the possible effects revictimization can have on survivors. I also wanted to know like um other things, like are they more more or less likely to reach out for help? What are some other like reactions or impacts that this can really have on survivors?
1: Many things can happen, right? I think that when somebody some of the effects of re-victimization, you know, persons kind of stay stuck in the trauma and they never are able to move forward and not able to move past it and feel like they can heal from it. Um, A lot of times they will shut down. You know, I sometimes, have worked with survivors that I may have do an intake with them and um or have maybe one session and then all of a sudden something happened. Maybe they went to meet with law enforcement or they had a court date or they, you know, was working with, you know, talking with a family member and all of a sudden I don't hear from them again. They stopped coming. So they'll stop their services. They just don't show up anymore. And it's just an indication like, all right, Maybe they're not ready to continue, you know, they they need to kind of regroup. They got had a step back. So sometimes, you know, they may um just just stop to stop looking for the services. They'll just stop, you know, and they'll just stay where they're at. It's like they can't move forward, they can't move past that. And a lot of times, you know, whatever the reactions that they're experiencing, the feelings that they're experiencing, depression. That can increase, you know, the sadness can increase, and maybe might cause them to have maybe some sort of suicidal thoughts. Maybe you know their isolation increases, you know, and or if it's a if it's a, a youth that we're talking about, might prompt them to run away, you know. Um, so many things can happen to somebody, you know. Um, and um, sometimes now they look for other avenues to cope because if they feel like, well. I'm trying to get the services. I'm trying to talk to my family. I'm trying to get the help. Nothing is working. They keep bringing me down. They keep increasing. Well, I'm going to take care of things on my own way. And my own way can be substance abuse. You know, it could be self-harm. You know, it can be, you know, uh, promiscuous um, behaviors. So all the things can then come in because what was working for them at the moment is not working for them anymore. So they're going to look for other outlets to help them to cope better.
0: Yeah, I think that's such an important piece to it, too. Um It really, I think they've done research and, you know, the first person that they share with can really impact kind of how quickly they reach out for help and, and, and finding places like the VSC and then just kind of starting that healing journey a little quicker. And beyond that, too, I know that it's about eight or nine years after an event occurs or, or the incident occurs, the trauma, before a survivor actually comes forward a lot of times and tells someone about it, at least through the research that we have seen with the clients that we work with. And it just goes to show that not only, you know, supporting the people in your life better can have that impact on their healing journey, but kind of changing the culture and the shame and the blame around it as a whole can help survivors seek that help and and start that healing path a little sooner and not feel so alone if we just normalize this conversation. I wanted to also kind of shift gears to how advocates can help survivors who've experienced victimization. Um, How do advocates kind of, we, we touched on a little bit about the different case studies, but how else can advocates really help survivors navigate this?
1: how we can help and continue is to you know encourage you know um the survivor to continue their services continue to talk just keep talking communication is so key you know being where they're at you know and 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 reminding them that they are supported you know and that they're not alone and helping them to just process those feelings helping them to discover self-help skills um you know their coping skills self um self-care what works for them sometimes you know there's a whole list we give out a big uh, resource packet to all of the survivors that we work with and then, and then there's worksheets with all different types of self-care um techniques there is a worksheet that has like 99 activities that people can do, you know, for coping strategies. It blows my mind when somebody says, well, I can't think of one. I'm like, I got a sheet that has 99 of them, you know? So I, you know, we go over that, we explore because you know what, what might work for some person may not work. And even if you have a huge bag of skills that may normally work for you in that moment, if you are being re-victimized and you're reliving this all over again, that skill may not work for you. So it's like, all right, well, what else can work, right? So, you know, just helping them to kind of navigate that um, and being where they're at. I always like to be, you know, client-centered You know, that's a technique that I like to use all the time. I want to be where they're at, what their needs are. And I go by that, you know, and try to support them as the best as possible.
0: I love that. Aurealis, do you have anything you want to add?
2: Yeah, um, I would say uh, I see a lot of um, clients who come in just very um, stuck um you know because they're not believed or you know like we said the family um you know the perpetrator is still within like the family dynamics um and it's very hard for them to be able to like move forward when they know that like the people that they loved and you know expected to be very supportive um, you know, that was not the case. So um, I feel like a lot of the ways that, you know, I help my clients is, you know, a lot of self-compassion, learning a lot of self-validation, um, you know, even if others um, aren't validating your experience. Um, and ultimately also just educating them that, you know, people uh, oftentimes don't believe survivors just for their for their own reasons. It isn't really anything to do with the survivor themselves. Um, it's just really hard for people to wrap their minds around the fact that, Sometimes things happen and, you know, it has nothing to do with what we did or didn't do. Sometimes we don't have control over everything. Um, So a lot of times that's where the victim blaming comes from. So um, educating folks and uh, yeah, a lot of self-compassion, self-validation, you know, to help them kind of get out of that stuckness um, and helping them identify like who are the people that you can really go to, Um, you know, those are the voices that you should be listening to. Um, I feel like that's a lot of what we do as well in our sessions.
0: What I'm hearing is kind of, you know, meeting the survivor where they're at as far as their needs and then just discovering what helps service those needs and what helps meet those needs. Um, And knowing who those people are, there could be people in your life that are the ones that help you get your mind off of it for the evening so they're you know do doing something fun and then there might be the friends who are really great at just listening and being there for you when you need to process a little bit so i i love that you can kind of reflect on that with the survivor to figure out what works for them um and yeah, I, I also didn't think of the idea that a survivor may even blame themselves for being blamed, if that makes sense, right? Like sharing a, a, their, you know, experience and then someone saying, you know, um, well, why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? And the survivor may even be like, did I not say it right to them? Like, and kind of blaming what they even said to this person. And at the end of the day, nothing is your fault. Um, even how people react and respond to your disclosure is also not your fault, too. Um, so I, a whole nother I piece
1: say, to it. Yeah, no, I could say, Emily, that like even today I was talking with uh, a client of mine and we were talking about expanding the support system, right? Like when you are just focusing or or, or not focusing, but all you have is your, your counselor, your therapist. And I'm like, I ain't going to be there all every day, all the time. You have to try to expand your support system, find someone you feel comfortable with, to talk to. Right. So one of the things that she says to me was, but I don't want to be a burden. I don't want my story to be a burden on them. I was like, well, well how can we address that? What can you do to address that before you even disclose? So we were brainstorming, you know, and one of the things that we had talked about was communicating, communicating those concerns before you even say anything like, hey, I have something to talk to you about. How would you feel? Would it be OK? You know, um, and if I disclose this to you, is it OK if I keep talking about it with you? Because that's what I need, you know, and it's OK to tell me, hey, not today. You know, so we were like role playing a little bit of what that conversation may look like. But, um, you know, so that's important to do that as well, like, you know, just to kind of just come up with them a plan, like, all right, you may want to proceed this way. Okay, well, what will be the backup to that? How are we going to make that happen? You know, in case if it doesn't, what's the what's the next step or whatnot?
0: I love that. I I always talk about emotional kind of boundaries, checking in with the people to see, you know, they could be going through their own thing. And, you know, we just want to make sure that they're also in a healthy headspace and able to support that person in that moment. We'll talk a little bit about self-care too, as a supporter. Um, Last point that I always like to make, um, because we talked about going through the justice system and other systems that, you know, sometimes might not be what the survivor is looking for. They think, um, you know, at first, I shouldn't say they think at first, maybe they decide to go down this path, but then they may rethink it and realize that, Mm, this isn't really meant for me. So can survivors still heal without going through that justice system? And then how can an advocate determine if it's right for them?
2: Uh, yeah, I mean, sometimes I think, you know, the justice system uh, can be very, you know, black and white. Um, and so oftentimes I, I don't think that, um, that's where survivors are getting their healing from. Um, If they do choose to go that path, I mean, I I remember having lots of conversations with survivors about, you know, like, what's your ultimate why, um, as far as like, why are you doing this and, and thinking more about like your values, right? So is this going to help you feel proud of yourself because you spoke up? Um, Is this going to help you feel like you're, you know, talking, bringing light to an important cause? you know is this going to help you feel uh more you know in control over the situation so really thinking about like those ultimate whys um outside of you know what the uh the um the end result with the criminal justice system would be with the court case um but i mean yeah i, I think ultimately it's about um you know having self-compassion for ourselves um you know knowing that um uh, we're not alone learning how to manage and process our own feelings you know learning how to be able to have hope for the future um i think that those are the ways that we really like find healing and move forward um and it doesn't just have to be you know in, within the um the court case
1: itself as an advocate what can we do fact being is you know i'm not we're not here to force anybody to do something that they don't want to do the criminal justice system is there. My job is to help you to understand it. My job is to help you, so, you know, get the information that you need, that you feel supported as you're navigating it, right? And a lot of times, people don't go down that route because, it, you know, for whatever their reasons are. And it's, and many times, people that choose not to go down that route will continue the healing process. You know, I always hear the word, I want justice. I, I, I'm doing this for justice. Justice can mean Many different things for many different people. You know, I met somebody recently, a, a you know client or survivor that I'm working with. And she had said, she said, I'm not looking to report this person. What my justice looks like is just an apology for what they did. You know, so it's what the person needs. So yes, you can heal from this trauma. You can, you know, find you know the piece of that, you know, what you're looking for without having to navigate that. It's like what Oriela says: what is the purpose? What is the why? And you know, art is is this what's gonna you know help you heal? Because navigating the criminal justice, that whole piece, going down that route, it's a lot to take in. It's it's a lot, you know. So and um. But it is possible person can definitely go down their, their their journey of healing if they choose not to go down that route.
0: Yeah. And I think um validating and uplifting what they can control, um, which is, you know, a lot of different things. And so being that emotional support for them and that wealth of knowledge so that they go in with full information so they can make that informed decision of what works for them. I think there's a lot of expectations or ideas about these different you know processes and stuff and so being able to speak with advocates and reflect on what those systems and their realities really are so that they can determine okay yeah this is it and then also exploring their needs too um, and really breaking it down specifically like I love how you brought up the idea of justice Well, justice is a really big word and can mean a lot of different things. So what does it mean to you? And then we can explore how we can, like, what route works best to achieve that kind of sense of closure or whatever you're looking for. Awesome. Um, You know, as kind of some final questions here... We talked a lot about how advocates can be better supporters or how advocates are great supporters to survivors, but how can we as individuals, as professionals, maybe in our professions, how can we be better supporters to survivors? Um, Yeah, I mean, I would say, uh,
2: you know, kind of a a couple of uh, tips would be, um, you know, offering to go to appointments, offering to, you know, if if they do have, you know, cord or they need to do something like that, like those tangible things that you can do for them. Because again, a lot of times they may feel overwhelmed, helpless. So, um, you know, they may be super on edge. And so it's hard for them to make decisions and, you know, remember things. So anything tangible like that, that you can do is very helpful. Um, You know, I would also say things like. not really asking um, for too many details, kind of letting them go at their own pace, you know, being patient with them, um, providing them the resources, but understanding that sometimes they may not be ready um, to seek out those resources. So uh, having a lot of patience um, and, uh, you know, not respecting those boundaries um, as well
1: you know, don't force people to talk if they're not ready to talk, you know, be respectful, you know, when you're trying to ask questions, when you're trying to, I want to know more, the survivors probably like, I'm not ready to talk, be where they're at, you know, don't force them, It's it's been hard enough, um, you know, what they're going through, and then to kind of feel like, now I'm being put on trial by my my by my by friends and, and family, you know, um, let them know that it's okay, you know, to, let them know it's okay to express. If they just want to sit and cry, let them sit and cry, you know, let them, you know, kind of go through their emotions in a safe space and in a safe way. Um, You know, that's very important. Um, Sometimes, you know, you want to Maybe the way you're per, um, asking the question, reframe it, you know, sometimes we might ask very intrusive questions, or they may come across very judgy and critical, you know, that may shut down the survivor. they like, I'm going to answer that. I don't have to answer that. Because that's the thing. The survivor does not have to share anything if they don't want to. I always like to tell my survivors, when you're working with me, this space, it's your space. You have the power and control here. I ain't forcing you to talk about anything. We ain't going to do anything that you don't want to do. So remember that. Let them have that power and control because they had something taken away from them and this is us giving them that back, you know, and I think it's very important about that because um, a lot of times, you know, survivors feel pressured. They feel like, "Well, oh, I was forced to do this. This is not what I want to do." Um, I was working. I'm working with a with a mom that um, she's our secondary victim, meaning where she's the mother of a primary victim. Our um, it's her daughter who was uh, sexually assaulted. You know, she's very adamant about getting her daughter counseling services and like I told um the mom was very disappointed when the daughter refused and I told the mom I that we cannot force her even though she's 14 we cannot force her she has to want this and be ready for it I said so what can you do to help your daughter and I you know and and like what we came to the to the conclusion is helping mom She's like, I want to help myself. I want to be in a better place. That's how I can help my daughter. I was just like, and there you go. I was just like, so that's what we're going to do. And that's how you can help your daughter, right? But can't force people, you know, if they're not ready, you can't force them. So just be there with them. Like I tell a lot of my survivors, you don't have to spill your guts in and you don't got to spill all the details of everything. Um, When you're asking and, and saying to somebody, hey, can you just sit with me? That's all I want you to do is just sit with me. That's what I need at the moment. I don't need no nothing more than that. It's okay to sit in silence. It's okay to cry. It's okay to just take it all in if that's what the person needs.
0: Love that. I got literal chills while you mentioned kind of this amazing idea of, you know, I'm going to work on myself as a supporter, as a secondary survivor, so I can show up as my best self for my daughter or for my fill in the blank, and also that kind of leads me to my other question, which is, you know, how can supporters also practice self care? Because I think a lot of times we may focus a little too, like we may focus so much on the survivor, which of course they definitely need that support and and things like that. But sometimes the person may feel like they've run themselves ragged and they're not able to support that person as much as they wish they could, because they're not really taking care of themselves.
2: Yeah. I mean, I love what Priscilla was saying about um, sometimes what the survivors really want is just someone to like sit there and be with them and just sort of like, let them feel their feelings and not trying to change or, you know, solve their feelings, uh, just kind of having that presence and um, just like that yeah, that presence itself is just very like validating and and connecting. Um, So I think understanding that it's not, you know, your responsibility um, to take away those feelings, um, just being there with the person and accepting them can be enough. Um, I think Priscilla or maybe it was Emily um, earlier mentioned sort of like having those boundaries when communicating. So, you know, um, yeah, just having that open communication if you're tapped out that day and, you know, you have a lot of your own stuff going on. Just being open with that person, um, you know, it's uh, it's better to be have that open communication than for it to um, lead into feeling resentful and feeling exhausted. Um, so yeah, just being open about like what your needs are and what your boundaries are as well, and taking time to have your own support system because. Um, you know, as a secondary survivor, you can um, sometimes have some of those similar trauma reactions as well. Um, And so having your own person, you know, that you can talk to. So um, yeah, a lot of it, I think is like having
1: those boundaries, you know, for yourself too. I think boundaries in communication so important because, you know, you, you as a supporter, as a secondary victim, you might be going through your own stuff and then to take on, you know, another person, because you want to be there, you want to help and support, you love that person, but it could be a lot. So just letting, like lay, laying out the boundary, communicating when it's a good time, when it's not a good time, today's a good day, it's not a good day, or just saying, hey, this is what I can handle, I want to be there for you, but this is what as much as I can go, right? So important. Um, I also just want to remind people, do what feels good for you after, you know, when you talk with that person, right, and they're sitting down and maybe you had a crying session with them and you're like, oh my gosh, now I'm feeling down and out. Just take out time for you. Do what makes you feel good at the moment. Whether if that's I'm gonna meditate for a few minutes, maybe I need to do some deep breathing. Maybe I need to take a bubble bath and just unwind and relax, right? Um, do something that always feels good for you. I always end heavy, I always try to end all of my sessions with be kind to yourself. Right. And whatever that may look like, be kind, you know, because sometimes we don't realize how much energy we're exerting as we're talking about these heavy things. And, it, and we don't want to sit in that for the rest of the day. Right. So do something that feels good. So, yeah, it's like realizing what your limits are, realizing what your boundaries are, realizing what you need to communicate, recognizing how much you can handle. Right. But also remembering that you need to take care of yourself as well. And, you know, and if you are unable to identify that and you're like, I don't know what I need to do with this. Share that with somebody, talk about it. Don't stay quiet. Definitely share that with other people.
0: Definitely. I think, um, I really appreciate you uplifting the fact that it can, these, you know, we talk a lot about like the healing journey. And I think that, um, it's, it's very pretty words, you know, but like, we kind of forget the really difficult, hard parts of it. It's, takes a lot of twists and turns. There's days where, like you were mentioning, just crying or um, really getting into deep, heavy stuff. And I always like to kind of let people know that your healing journey is your journey. And there's no wrong way, right? Um, Of course, there's like unhealthy coping mechanisms and things like that. And we'll like advocates and therapists can help you work through it. But I guess... I just want to validate everyone's experience as they go through healing that there's no like perfect way to heal if that makes sense and then as supporters recognizing that and also knowing to take care of themselves too and then that can look different for everyone as well especially during these like harder days maybe for for healing and you're always moving forward and Kind of like when you're maybe working out, for example, you need to heal after, right? You still need some time to rest too. So that self-care is just as integral as those really tough days too. Um, If someone wants to learn a little bit more about how to be a good supporter, do you have any kind of literature or podcasts or anything that they can listen to? Where can they go to learn a little bit more
2: I don't have a specific resource that comes to mind. Um, I mean, I know Minnesota, you know, coalition against sexual assault. They have some, you know, resources and things like that. That one comes to mind. But I would just really recommend you can contact your local rape crisis center. Um, you know, if you Google that, it'll usually bring up the, the number for your um, your county agency, and they'll have the resources, and they'll have advocates. and. The resources aren't just for the survivor, um, but for the supporters too, who might want to get, you know, educated and, um, you know, get
1: some tips. So that's where I would recommend starting is your local rape crisis center. Perfect that you say that, because I know we were using the term um, secondary victim, and people are probably like, what is a secondary victim? What's a primary victim, right? So primary victim is the person that experienced the trauma, right? They were victimized. They're They're the person that experienced it. But the secondary, it can be a family member, a close relative, a partner to that primary victim that is also being affected by the trauma, by the victimization. So even if like, let's say the supporter, you know, might say to themselves, well, I'm the parent of somebody that was recently assaulted or is a victim of domestic violence or of a robbery or or anything like that, right? And they're like, I don't know what to do, where to go. Um, They, like you said, they can contact a local, you know, rape crisis center for sexual assault, but if it's, you know, or a victim's um, service center, If you were to call us, the Victim Service Center or Central Florida, we do take on, you know, clients that are secondary victims. So if you're unsure and you're just kind of like, well, would I qualify? How can they help me? Just call the main office. Our main office number is 407-254-9415. And we can definitely navigate, you know, and talk with you to see if you would qualify. And if you did. We'll be gladly to take you on and do an intake, you know, so there's a way. And if you're and if we're not the right agency for you, we'll even help you and try to give you some community resources of other agencies that might be more appropriate.
0: I love that. Thank you so much for both of you for uplifting that. Um, I think another kind of place where you can go to is that. start by believing is a wonderful campaign about how to be just uh, in general start by believing when someone discloses sexual violence and it's really about you know what do i say afterwards and they have really great resources on there as far as you know if you're um you know a professional like a medical professional or maybe you're part of law enforcement and your role is a little different than just a supporter, um, or a friend. And so you can, I definitely recommend them just kind of Googling start by believing and learning a little bit more about it. And then you could just follow different, um, on Instagram, like the uh, national sexual violence resource center is a great one just to just learn a little bit more about trauma and a little bit more about sexual violence and then of course, at the same time, giving yourself boundaries and space to take a break from from this kind of stuff too. And just knowing um, you know, the signs of burnout, uh, like the feelings of maybe irritability, maybe you're just feeling overwhelmed. It's okay to take a step back um as well. So just wanted to uplift those. But um, I think that's a great place to sign up, but before I do, is there anything else you'd like to say that we may not have covered anything you'd like to final
1: thoughts or anything like that? You know, I, I was actually sharing with some of my, uh, survivors that we were doing this podcast and they were very, they, they were very touched and happy because they have been revictimized by, you know, different systems and, um, They were like, please get the word out, you know, it's hard enough, you know, they've been victimized, they have their trauma, but when they've been re-victimized by those that they're supposed to, you know, trust, you know, and are supposed to receive support and love and, and whatnot, it's it's a challenge. It can set back their healing process. So, you know, definitely start by believing where they're at. Let's be mindful that, you know, this is not an easy journey, you know, trying to heal from trauma is not easy, you know, it takes time takes a lot of time it takes as long of a time that the victim needs everybody's different some you know some survivors are like well i want to be okay in 2 weeks it may happen, it may not happen. Let's be let's be real here. It's gonna take time. So I say that to the supporters and to the people that are working with survivors of any kind of trauma. Let's remember that everybody's journey is different. It's not gonna look the same. And the end journey is to the, the end purpose is all the same. We want to see them heal from this and be at peace. So, you know, let's try to do it together, you know, and let's uplift our survivors to get to their goal you know, we're all on the same path, you know, and, and we want to see them be successful at their journey.
0: I love that. And I think that's so beautiful to sign off with. So thank you for listening to the Victim Service Center podcast. The VSE is a nonprofit organization that provides free individualized con- confidential counseling services for victims of any kind of trauma in Central Florida. So to learn more about our services, please visit victimservicecenter.org. And to everyone listening, healing is not linear and you are not alone. And thank you so much, Orioles and Priscilla, for joining me today. I really appreciate it.